Thank you very much. It's certainly a great privilege for me as a foreigner to participate in this marvelous occasion. Uh, Britain and America are divided by their common language, and I hope you will be able to understand what I shall be saying. Uh, most other speakers have described their successes. I thought I might describe my failures and how you might learn from them, but I then realized that would take far longer than eight minutes. Uh, so I'm instead going to be somewhat less personal uh, than most speakers, and I thought uh, I would instead reflect on two forthcoming anniversaries related to my science. 30 years ago, July 1969, was when Neil Armstrong took his first small step. And that's a very long time ago. Only the middle-aged can remember when men walked on the moon. When I and people my age were young, it was a futuristic prospect that men should walk on the moon. But to my students, and I guess to you here, it's in the mists of ancient history. My students know that the Americans landed men on the moon. They know the Egyptians built the pyramids. But the national motives seem to them almost as strange for the one enterprise as for the other. When I saw the film Apollo 13, where Tom Hanks plays the astronaut James Lovell, it recalled for me events I'd followed anxiously at the time. But to young people in England, and maybe to some of you, that film seemed sort of archaic, almost like a Western, old right stuff values, and very old-fashioned technology. Certainly, I'm sure many of you own computers more powerful than the biggest mainframe NASA had at that time. So there has been a tremendous development in most technologies, but not in manned spaceflight. That's because the Apollo program was fueled by superpower rivalry. It was seen as an end in itself, and manned spaceflight is rather stagnated. Of course, we are now going to have the International Space Station, but I frankly doubt that that will ever recapture the enthusiasm of the public in the way that Apollo did. But unmanned space activities have developed fast. Miniaturization and robotics have developed. And as an astronomer, there's one prospect that especially excites me and many people who I talk to, and that is the search for other planets other Earths around other stars. Suppose you were viewing our solar system from, say, 50 light years away. Our sun would look like an ordinary star. Even Jupiter would be barely detectable using the kinds of telescopes we have here on Earth. And Earth would be far fainter still. In Carl Sagan's phrase, Earth would be a pale blue dot, billions and billions of times fainter than its parent star. But if you did have a telescope, or if these aliens did have a telescope that could image the Earth, then they could learn quite a lot about the Earth from 50 light years away. Because the Earth would be a slightly different shade of blue if the Eurasian landmass was pointing towards you from if the Pacific Ocean was. So by watching, you could infer the length of the day, 
that there were continents and something of the Earth's topography and climate. Well, this tells us that we could learn about these other worlds if we had a big enough telescope. And I'm very excited that one of NASA's priorities is to put large telescopes in space to search for Earth-like planets around other stars. This will really, I think, be inspiring. But of course, what motivates NASA's interest, and I think what motivates our enthusiasm for this, is a second question. Would there be life on any of these other worlds? This is a much harder question, because biology is a much harder subject than physics and astronomy. Living things are far more complicated. So we don't know enough to know whether life evolves everywhere, given the right environment, or whether life is a rare accident. Even less do we know whether simple life would evolve into intelligent life. Intelligent life could be common, or it could involve such a rare chain of accidents that nothing like it's happened anywhere else in our universe. We just don't know. As you may know, at the SETI Institute in uh, California, they're doing systematic scans for artificial signals that might be sent out by extraterrestrial life. I think this is a worthwhile gamble, despite the heavy odds against success, because of the import of any detection. The mere receipt of any manifestly artificial signal, even a string of prime numbers or something, even if we couldn't make much sense of it, would tell us that our Earth wasn't the only place where something interesting had evolved, and that concepts of logic and physics weren't unique to the hardware in human skulls. Now, the nearest potential sites for life are, of course, so far away that light would take many years in transit. For that reason alone, transmission would be mainly one way. There'd be time to send a measured response, but no scope for quick repartee, as it were. And, of course, we should remember that even if there is intelligent life elsewhere, it may be enjoying an entirely contemplative life and doing nothing to reveal itself. Absence of evidence wouldn't be evidence of absence. I'd like to conclude by reminding you there's nothing very modern about speculations about life and other worlds. In the 16th century, an Italian monk called Giordano Bruno wrote this. He said, there are countless suns and planets. We see only the suns because they give light. The planets remain invisible, for they are small and dark. There are also numberless earths circling around their suns, no worse and no less than this globe of ours. And it's reasonable to believe that heavenly bodies more magnificent than ours would bear upon them creatures similar or even superior to those upon our human earth. Well, we still don't know if Bruno was right about the other inhabited worlds. But just 400 years ago, Bruno was burnt at the stake for many heresies, including that one. And that's a second anniversary that I think deserves to be remembered. Because Bruno was, I suppose, the Carl Sagan of his time. And his fate reminds us that there were very much worse and more dangerous times than now to be a speculative scientist thinking about black holes and life. Thank you very much.
Would you like to take one Please. question? One or two questions, yes, certainly. Yeah. Just quickly, two questions. Yeah. I know there are some ways, such as the Drake equation, to uh, guess based on personal opinion, at least, and possibly educated guesses how many uh, intelligent life forms there are out there, or what the probability of finding them is. What is your personal estimate of uh, what the value of that mm -hmm. solution to that equation is? Yes. Well, we do now know in a way we didn't when Drake wrote down his equation that planets are common around other stars. We know there are lots of planets, probably many like the Earth. But I think the other uncertainties about how likely it is that life evolves and whether life will evolve to become intelligent if simple life gets started, in my view, we don't know enough to know whether that is likely or unlikely. So I would say there are tremendous uncertainties and we've got to wait for biology, or for some exciting observations to settle that question. Still very uncertain, but worth a gamble. Do I hope there's life? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, in a way, it will be disappointing if these SETI searches reveal nothing. But on the other hand, if life is so rare that it's unique to the Earth, then we can think of the Earth, despite its uh, small scale compared to the cosmos, as being uniquely important, as the only place where life got started. And another thing we learn in astronomy is that the time spans lying ahead are at least as long as those in the past. We're not the culmination of evolution. And so if there was no other life out there, we have perhaps the rather elating prospect that the Earth is cosmically important and that life from here could spread through the galaxy and beyond. If this were correct, it would give us an extra motive for taking care of our Earth. Uh, so uh, I think the view is I ambivalent. I would like to detect life out there, but on the other hand, if there isn't any, then we can see our Earth as being more important than we would otherwise. Question up here on stage. Yeah, yeah. My name is Wes Herman from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm very interested in the study of black holes because um, they're so uh, the, the theory, you know, at, at singularity where um, all our laws of physics almost become undefined. And I also know that the subject is uh, very controversial, especially in you know, the last few years. And um, as a, a man on the, the forefront of the science, um, I was wondering if you could give us some idea of um, anything concrete as, as the newest theories that are represented and what the current uh, understanding is of the black holes. Well, I can't give a one-hour lecture, can I? But just two remarks. Uh, okay. First, um, uh, we know almost certainly that black holes do exist. Space is punctured by these collapsed objects. But what we don't know is what happens in the center. Right in the center of a black hole, conditions are so extreme that they certainly transcend anything we know about physics. And that same uncertainty is important in cosmology because at the beginning of our universe, when everything started off very hot and dense, then again, we don't know what happens. So uh, inside black holes and at the beginning of our universe, we get to conditions where we know for sure we don't know the answer. And that's, uh, in a way, exhilarating. It means that science is an unending quest to push back the frontier further. And those are two examples of places where we have such a frontier. Thank you very much.